The following message is brought to you by the Kantaro Institute. To learn more about the Kantaro Institute's mission to advance the Christian philosophy of life, please visit www.kantaroinstitute.org. Well, it's great to see you. My name is Stephen Martins. I am one of the pastoral interns here at the church. You know, it's one of the uh, interesting times of the year, I find, because you're kind of living in the hyphen. You just finished Christmas festivities. You're looking forward to the new year, and you're kind of caught in this tension, or at least sometimes I feel that way. You know, do you look back and reflect, or do you just look forward to the new year, or which, which of the two do you do? Well, what we as a family have generally done is we've treated this time as an opportunity to just kind of look back and see how God has been faithful. What has God done for us? What has God done that is worthy of such praise in addition to who he is and how we ought to praise him? But this wasn't always the case for myself or for my family. There was a time in my life, just remembering back at my childhood and my teenage years, that it was really quite different. Instead of looking back at the year and reflecting on God's faithfulness, I would instead look back and reflect on what I've done or where I've failed or how much I've been able to accomplish. And most often at times, it was a time of frustration, not of thanksgiving. It was time of conflict, not of joy. It was time of pessimism. Let me explain that to you a little bit more and just sharing part of my story. So I grew up in Midtown area of Toronto. My family and I just moved here uh, in February earlier this year. First time living in Niagara, at least for myself. My wife has uh, been in Welland, so she's, this is her stopping grounds. For me, however, I am a Torontonian. You know, I grew up in Toronto. I, I hate the traffic. I'm so glad I'm not there now, and I love Niagara. But Toronto was my home for most of my life. And I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were... Uh, my father, Portuguese, from Portugal. My mother, Ecuadorian, from South America. And so we were a predominantly Spanish-speaking household. And so my bro- younger brother and I grew up in various Spanish and Portuguese churches in Toronto, depending on where we ended up moving as my parents were looking for work. And uh, that was really most of our church experience was within the Hispanic community up until university. And if you're familiar with uh, Latin American church culture, you'll, you'll, well, this very pains me to say this, you'll know that most oftentimes the Hispanic churches, they'll preach the gospel, but it's a very lackluster gospel, it's a deficient gospel, sometimes there's a distortion. And that's not to say that all Hispanic churches are like that, you know, the majority have been. The majority, as I've traveled to Central America, have exemplified this very thing, and I will explain and elaborate on that. And that was my experience, but I recognize that there are also smaller Hispanic church communities that have been faithful in preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, exactly as God's Word teaches. But that was not my experience. That was not my upbringing. You see, I grew up and I was taught what Scripture teaches that I am a sinner before God. God is holy. God is just. I have broken his law. Since our very first parents in the book of Genesis, we have all fallen to sin. Our parents sinned against God. They turned away from him. And ever since then, our world has been fallen. We've been under the curse of sin. We have been separated and alienated from God. And I recognize that. 
Paul, in a letter to the church in Rome, had written that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23, and that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. I knew that. I grew up with that. I understood that very clearly from the outset, and that God, in his just nature, sentences all. But I was also taught, out of love for his creation, out of love for you and me, what God did, according to John chapter 3, verse 16, is that he manifested his grace by sending his son, Jesus Christ, so that he would live and fulfill the law where we have failed and die a death that would satisfy our sin debt with God. And this great sacrifice, this costly provision that makes the forgiveness of our sin and the restoration of our lives possible is applied to those who have repented, applied to those who have surrendered and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so when I grew up with that, I understood that, I believed that, I said the sinner's prayer, I think maybe ten times in my childhood, am I saved now, am I saved now, wanting to be saved and forgiven of my sin. And most of you are probably asking, well, that sounds like the good news of the gospel. Jesus has come, has paid the sin, uh, your sin debt for you. He's made the way. He's brought you back into relationship with God. Absolutely. Then where was the deficiency? What was it that I struggled with? It was actually at the tail end. You see, I believed that I was saved and forgiven of my sin, of breaking God's law by God's grace, his unmerited favor. I deserve judgment. Instead, he showed me grace and love. But I was taught, and this was clearly not biblical, but I didn't know any better at the time. I was taught that there was no guarantee that God's grace would endure. Now, these past few days, my wife, Cindy, and I, we've been reading through Pilgrim's Progress. And if you haven't read the book, I really recommend you do. It's a fantastic Christian analogy. Uh, it's written by John Bunyan, one of the Puritans, and it's on the Christian life. And the story is of a man named Pilgrim. He's been called out of the city of destruction and to the celestial city where King Jesus reigns. And over the course, I just reflect on this, over the course of my teenage years, I was much like Pilgrim as he was just leaving the city of destruction. I was called out of condemnation, judgment, and death, and towards forgiveness, justification, being made right with God, and life in Jesus Christ, but I still had a heavy burden tied around my neck. No matter what I did, no matter what I believed, this was a difficult time for my life. My time in high school was not an easy time. It was unenjoyable. That was filled with worries and constant doubt every minute of the day. I had been given God's free gift of grace. I believed this and loved this so dearly, but I was worried that I might lose it. I was worried that my lack of merit would result in my disqualification of God's grace. I told myself that as God's mercies are new every morning, which is what Scripture teaches, then every day was a new opportunity to prove myself worthy of such grace. And now most of you can obviously tell, I had no idea what grace really was. It was a distorted understanding of what grace is. And I would try very hard, very intentionally every day to live perfectly before God because I believe that my privileged place as God's adopted son depended on it. I remember one time standing by a bus stop 
going to school. It was about 11th grade. And I felt pretty confident that morning, as most mornings I did, because I hadn't sinned yet. At least that's what I believed and I was conscious of. And I was just sitting at the bus stop like, all right, I'm doing well. God's got to be happy. It's another day I can prove myself worthy of such grace. And I just turned into this, uh, this advertisement that's on uh, this uh, terminal station. And it's a, a picture of a seductive woman promoting a perfume. And that immediately led a teenage mind to sinful thoughts. And I remember the guilt, condemnation, the feeling I felt that very moment that I would be praying incessantly in my mind on the bus on my way to school that God would have mercy on me. And it's no exaggeration. There are times I remember being in my classroom where there was a break oftentimes during the class and I would lay down my head pretending to have people think that I was asleep or that I was just lazy, just like any other average teenager in school. But in reality, I was in agony before God because I was in doubt whether God would indeed forgive me. I began to question my salvation. I would pray literally every moment in silence. I didn't enjoy living for Jesus. It became a burden. It became a chore. It became an impossible life to live, but I still desired it nonetheless because of my love for God. So for me, it was an inescapable dilemma. You see, what I had fallen into was not the liberty that the grace of God brings. Instead, I fell into the captivity that legalism brings. Instead of seeing God's law in the context of God's grace, I saw it as my mediator for salvation and right standing with God. Instead of resting my faith on God's faithfulness, I rested my faith in how good and faithful I could possibly be. And this carried on for a few years up until the 12th grade. And the more conscious I became of the severity of my sins, the heavier that burden became. See, every year end was not a reflection of God's faithfulness. It was a reflection of how I had failed, of my spiritual bankruptcy as opposed to God's goodness and what he had done for me. In the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim gets along a journey. He's going, following this road to the celestial city, and he meets across uh, Mr. Worldly, and Mr. Worldly tells him not to follow the instructions of the evangelist and, and says, oh, you want to get rid of that burden? Go up the hill and see Mr. Law. Actually, go up the mountain and see Mr. Law, and he'll help get that burden off of you. That's what I had done. I had thought that through the law, I could be made righteous. Through the law, I can prove myself worthy before God. But as I went up that hill, what happens to Pilgrim is he begins to feel the weight on his shoulders, the weight on his neck, and he begins to crush him to the ground as he becomes ever more conscious of his sin and his guilt. But just as God had rescued me from my sin, he also saved me from this distorted way of thinking. As I walked every morning to high school in an effort to help keep my mind on heavenly things and not earthly things. I didn't want to be distracted by the things of this world, and I wanted to live a perfect life. Remember, that was my way of thinking. I thought, well, there's got to be one way. I know I'll just drown out all the busyness of the world and just plug my ears with an MP3 player. The iPads didn't, no, iPods didn't come out at that time yet. I think they were just coming out. And I would just plug my ears and hear all these sermons, and that'll keep me busy and holy. Well, that was a 
Not quite the right way of thinking, but God used that nonetheless, in spite of my ignorance. In fact, God used many of the sermons that I was listening to to correct a mistake that I had committed. These churches which God in His grace has continued to preserve and continue to work in throughout my childhood and teenage years had taught me a distorted gospel. And as I began to listen to these sermons, these were sermons that were bringing me back to the truth of Scripture and making me understand that just because someone stands at the pulpit doesn't mean that they speak infallibly, that they speak without error, that they speak exactly what God's Word says. It's one of the things that I love about here at Harbor is that every time Pastor Mark or Pastor Jeff comes up here to speak and to preach, it is from God's Word. You can verify that for yourself. That wasn't my experience growing up. For me, it was you just believe what you're told, whatever you're taught, you just have to assume it's in there. You have to assume that it's in the Bible. But then I began to read Scripture. Those sermons brought me to listening to the Word of God through the audiobook format. You know, I'm a teenager. I didn't quite like to read that much at that time. Very different where I am now. And suddenly that brought me to reading Scripture on a daily basis and as a daily practice. And as I began to read, I began to understand what it is that God's grace truly brings. I went directly to God's Word to just be like the Bereans, this group in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, who after hearing the Apostle Paul preach the gospel were examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I went from slavery just recognizing as God opened my eyes to the reality of His faithfulness and His grace, I went from slavery and legalism to liberty and grace, from abandoning my pretended self-righteousness that could possibly somehow be made holy by my own efforts, I abandoned that and depended entirely on the grace of God and His righteousness. So at every year end now, instead of looking back on what I've done, I instead look at what God has done for me and I give thanks. It's not about me. It's about what God has done. It's not about the failures. It's about what God has done to cover those failures and to help me through. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, does exactly this in his opening words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 to 9. I feel like this is an adequate passage for this time of year. It reads as follows. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul here expresses a heartfelt thanks. It's a thanks that is so theologically profound and rich for the grace that God has shown to his people. Grace, as it's portrayed by Scripture, is the unmerited favor of God towards his image bearers. It's not earned. It cannot be won as if it's a competition or a lottery. It cannot be traded for. It doesn't matter how much money you might have. Grace can only be given as a free gift from God, and He offers it freely. 
We've been offered grace, and it is because we desperately need it. Because without it, we're lost. We're separated from God. We are hopeless. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Paul had preached to the Corinthians, that God has provided us with forgiveness, salvation, and restoration through his son, Jesus. So the Corinthians knew what Paul meant by the words grace given you in Christ Jesus. This concept of grace was not lost to them. In fact, if you're familiar with the church in Corinth, they had various problems, various sin problems, but they began to understand the grace of God through Paul's letters. In verses 5 to 7, Paul goes on to further explain what he means by his grace given you in Christ Jesus, that to be given grace is not only to be forgiven and restored, it is also to be enriched in every way. What Paul means by the words, in all speech and in all knowledge, are these spiritual graces which make up the Christian character. In other words, those who are in Christ Jesus are gifted with all kinds of speech that reflect and communicate the work of the gospel in your heart. It's the outpouring of the Lord's work in our hearts. If God has made a change or begun a change in your heart, that will be made evident with what you say, with what you do, with how you live life. And this speech is complemented by knowledge. Not knowledge in an academic sense. Not knowledge in terms of getting a PhD. The Greek word that's here can be interpreted as God-given wisdom. This means a right understanding of the world, of ourselves, our relationship with God, and how we ought to live, being created in God's image. It is this enrichment in Jesus Christ, this spiritual wealth that we have received, we've gone from spiritual brokenness and bankruptcy to wealth in Jesus Christ, this is what confirms the presence of Christ in our midst and the transforming work that he has begun in our hearts. And this is followed by a very encouraging expression, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, uh, you might be inclined to think that Paul is making reference to the gifts of the Spirit in chapters 12 to 14. But the Greek word charisma here is being used in a much more broader sense, a more general sense. It conveys the gracious gifts of redemption in general. This gift is the grace of God towards the sinner, which includes forgiveness of sin, restoration from corruption, spiritual life, adoption into God's family as his children, and the fruit of a transformed heart. As Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And life in its fullest, most comprehensive sense. Just as the Christians in Corinth, we who are in Christ Jesus do not fall short in any gift of grace. And we never will as we wait for the second return, the second advent of our Lord Jesus. The eighth verse that follows can be read as a divine promise that Christ and his work shall sustain you. 
This means that Christ, by keeping us true in faith until His return, offers us daily grace, a sustaining grace, something I did not understand in my youth. See, the emphasis here is not on you. It's not on myself. It's not on Jeff or on Pastor Mark. It's not on the Corinthians or on Paul. It is Christ who sustains you. This means that if you're in Christ, no sin you could ever commit could cause God to love you any less, to treat you any less than his own son or daughter, because his salvific work in you is not based on what you do or what you can do, but based on who he ultimately is. Think about that for a second. God's gift to you summed up in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, cannot be taken away from you. It's not dependent on you. You can't disqualify yourself from God's grace. If you have received it, if you are drawn irresistibly to him, he is ours and we are his. Until the end of time and into eternity, that cannot change. Now, we will live rightly before God, not because we're seeking salvation and righteousness through the law, but because out of love for our King and Savior who has brought us into liberty. And this is why Paul writes in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. If God's salvific work in our lives were dependent on us, our unfaithfulness would condemn us. We would be ultimately hopeless and helpless. But Paul does not say that you or I or the Corinthians or the apostles are faithful. No, he says God is faithful. Nowhere here does Paul begin his letter by praising the Corinthians for their faith or for their love or for their works. Paul instead begins his letter thanking God for his divine grace, the gift and confirmation. It is because of God's grace that we have faith, because of his grace that we have been enriched, because of his unmerited favor that we can live transformed lives in liberty because he is faithful. See, I was very much like Pilgrim in the Pilgrim's Progress, carrying a heavy burden around my neck until I understood the significance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The extent and nature of his grace that swallowed up my sin. I don't carry a burden on my shoulders anymore. And ever since I laid it all down on the cross, I have looked back on the passing year and I say, God is faithful. I didn't live a perfect life. I tried my best to please God. But I recognize I will always fall short of God's glory. But thank God that he has given me his grace. Not an initial saving grace and that's it. No, he's given me a daily sustaining grace that he offers you to you as well. Thank God that he is faithful, that he keeps his promises. As this year closes, we can look back on 2018. And in light of this passage, there are three things we can always be thankful for. That those who are in Christ Jesus, according to verse 4, he has brought us from alienation and judgment, from separation and judgment, to adoption as his children and salvation. From verses 5 to 7, from spiritual bankruptcy and total corruption to enrichment and restoration. And verses 8 to 9, from condemnation to justification, that is, to be made right in right standing with God. 
What God has promised to do, by his grace he has done, and the work he has begun in you, he shall bring into completion. He is faithful, always faithful. I like the way the NIV renders this particular passage of James chapter 1, verse 17, and it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Just as God loved you yesterday, He loves you today, and He'll love you tomorrow. He does not change, and He shall bring into completion the work He has begun in you. I don't know, maybe you don't have this experience. You haven't experienced in your daily walk what it is like to walk with Christ. Well, if you'd like to know more, please feel free to speak with one of our staff members, with anyone here at Harbor about that. We would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our dear friend. And don't shy away from this gift that God offers you. Don't think that you might be too broken in your sin to be able to come before God. God has his arms wide open. His grace is given unto all. Let us have a quick moment of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness. This year is coming to an end. We look back, O oh Lord God, and we see how you've been faithful. So many different events might come into our minds. We've gone through highs and lows. We've been through various trials. Perhaps we've also experienced great celebrations and joy. In the midst of it all, our hope is not resting on ourselves. It's resting on you. You have proven yourself faithful time and time again. You are not like shifting shadows. You do not change. You are not like man that you should lie. You are true and faithful. You have brought us into salvation. You offer grace freely unto us. And we say thank you. As we look forward to this new year to come, may we always reflect and give praise of this great grace that you've bestowed upon us. Thank you for your faithfulness, and may you be glorified above all. And Lord, I thank you for Harbor, and I thank you for the grace that you have given them, each and every one of us. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this message by the Cantaro Institute. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not commercialize or alter this material without the express written consent of the Cantaro Institute.